Hello, everyone. Hopefully you're enjoying some of this warm weather. I will say I uh, was complaining a, bit, a few weeks ago about how cold it was. And I was like, I, this country, like, it just needs to get warm, you know? And then this last, like, week or two, I've been like, it is too hot, you know? <laughs> I'm like, there's no beach. There's no swimming pools to go to. What, is, what are we supposed to do? There's no air conditioning in our homes, you know? It's just hot. <laughs> anyway, so I hope you're enjoying the warm weather. <laughs> Well, we are in a series on Revelation currently, and um, we're going through the seven different churches in Revelation. And so on week one, I'm just going to give you a brief overview of what's gone before. So in week one, um, Luke gave us a great word on Revelation, and he was talking about give us a big overview of Revelation. He said that Revelation is a letter, that it is a prophecy, and that it is an apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature, what it means is that there's lots of imagery. So we're going to see some imagery as we read through the uh, scripture that we're doing through today. And then Luke also talked about the church in Ephesus, and it was talking about coming back to our first love. And then last week, Tom gave us a brilliant message on the church in Smyrna, and he said that God is present, that God is powerful, and God is provident, even in the midst of the mess. So this week, we're in week three, and we're going to be talking about the church in Pergamum. Uh, before we go started, I want to talk about the word compromise. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I heard lots of the word compromise when I was going through premarital advice. When you're going through premarital, they're telling you all about compromise. But I don't think I really realized how much compromise I would have to do until I got married. <laughs> Now, there are lots of different ways that you people can compromise in marriage, right? Uh, you like to do, start doing things that your partner might like that you might not really enjoy. Um, you might do um, some of the household tasks that you don't really necessarily enjoy, but, you know, for the sake of your family, right? Uh, but one thing I want to talk about when, that I started doing in our marriage is video games. Now, I did not grow up playing video games, okay? I don't have any brothers. I didn't really grow up playing video games. But James really likes video games, so I started playing video games with him a little bit, okay? And we started, we first, we got a Nintendo Switch. It was the only thing on our wedding registry that did not get purchased. So I did the, the, you know, the wife thing. I compromised, let him buy a Nintendo Switch. So then he started saying that we could play together. Yay. So the first thing... <laughs> So the first game we started playing was Mario Kart. Now, I played a bit of Mario Kart before, and, you know, I, we, you know, I have the bumpers on, basically. You know, like in bowling when you have the bumpers up? So I can't fall off the track. So I can sometimes beat him with lots of help, you know? And then we started playing this game recently. It was this other Mario game, okay? And we have a little picture of the Mario game that we play together. And now you'll see. Now, when somebody goes ahead of the other person in this game, the other person follows in this little bubble. So as you can see here in this thing, James is over there. He has a little crown on his head because, he, of course, he's won all of the levels. And then here I am. I don't know if you can see, but there's a little character in a bubble. That's me just following him around. <laughs> so I spent basically the entire game that we played in this little bubble just following him around. And occasionally, I'll just pop down and then fall back off and then end up right back in a bubble. So, then we can go ahead and show the next slide. This is what normally happens at the end of the level. <laughs> yes, I had zero points that level. Sometimes he'll get to where he, like, he gets a star and you get some points for it, and he'll be like, Rachel, you go get the star. I'm like, okay, and I run over and get it. He's done all of the work, okay, but he just lets me get them. Sometimes I get points just for that. <laughs> 
But this is one of the ways that we compromise. Now, in marriage, it is a great thing to be able to compromise. I, although I'm not a huge video game fan, I have no idea what I'm doing with the buttons, but, but it's something that he really enjoys, so I have started compromising in that way. But there's another side of compromise, the more negative side of compromise, which is when you start to give in all of the parts of you and you, you sacrifice your beliefs. And this is what we're going to be talking about today. This whole section of the Bible that we're about to read uh, in the New King James Version is called The Compromising Church. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So if you want to open your Bibles, we're going to be in Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. So if you have a Bible, you can open it. And this section is called The Compromising Church, or in my Bible, To the Church in Pergamum. (laughs) So starting in verse 12, it says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has words, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. In Luke's message, he gave us the format that all of the different churches, the, when John was writing it and when Jesus was saying it, he gave us a bit of a format. So this, all of the churches, when, they, when they're, um, there's this feedback that they're being given, uh, they, it all starts with a description of Jesus, and that references chapter 1. Then you have a diagnosis, how the church is doing. Then you have some action points. Then it says, listen to all of the churches. It's important that we see this church, um, the words to this church, in the view of all of the different churches. And finally, there's a blessing to the one who conquers. And this is a reference from chapters 21 and 22. So we're going to start off with a description of Jesus. In here, when, um, it says that Jesus in verse 12, it says, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. And in Revelation 1.16, this is the reference back to Revelation 1, and in Revelation 1.16 it says, In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. You might remember the, the double-edged sword, you might remember that reference, and it comes from Hebrews 4.12, where it says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So the double-edged sword is used throughout the Bible as an image um, to describe the Word of God. And it means that there is power in the Word of God. Just like a sword can be used for offense and defensive, um, there's also power in the God's Word. But there's another um, reason why they talk about um, him carrying the sword here. And it's because there was executions and persecutions happening all across the area during this time. All of the churches were experiencing persecution. But this city, the city of Pergamum, was known as the city who had the most persecution and the most executions of Christians. And they were boasting about the fact that they were carrying the sword 
of persecuting Christians. And Jesus completely flips this here in this narrative, and he says that I am the one who carries the sword. You see, even though they had temporary power over life and death of the Christians, ultimately Jesus has the power over life and death. He was the one who was going to bring eternal life for, the, for those who follow him. So the next part is the diagnosis, what they are doing well. So the city that they lived in, in Pergamum, it was the center of pagan worship. There was worship, there was a temple erected to the god of healing, there was a temple erected to the god of salvation, there was a temple erected for the god, um, or the king of kings god, that's what they called them. Um, so this was a center of pagan worship. And what I find interesting is that they had all these different gods to do all of these different things, and yet Jesus accomplishes all of them in one being. He is the God of healing. He is the God of salvation. He is the King of kings. This was also a city where they had the first um, living ruler to erect an, a temple to worship himself. So in 29 BC, Augustus decides that he's going to have a temple so that people can worship him. And so he erects it in the city of Augustus. You see, it was hard to be living in a place where there was hard, it was hard to be a Christian in this place because it was the center of pagan worship. It's hard to be a Christian in a context where there's persecution and execution waiting for them. It's hard to be a Christian in a place of pagan beliefs and practices. And even in our day here in Sheffield, we know that we, we live in a society that is against our beliefs. And it would have been really easy for them to turn away in this moment. But instead, Jesus celebrates the fact that they have not lost their faith. They have not given up. It also said that this city is where Satan dwells or where Satan's throne is. And in the Bible, Satan's throne is described in, as a place of pride, a place where they were trying to go up. In Isaiah 14, 13 through 15, Isaiah's talking, uh, or in Isaiah, it's talk, Jesus, God is talking to Satan, and you're going to hear the words of Satan. And I want you to think about all of the words where he's trying to get higher. And then Jesus just tells him that he's going to go down, basically. <laughs> but we want you to read and think about all the different words where he's trying to go higher. So it says, But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And then God says to him, Nevertheless, you will be th thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. He says pride, pride tells us that we need to get higher, and Jesus says that you should act like a servant. The world says our goal in life is to get more things, to get rise, pay, job, pay rises in our job, to become a leader, to gain more education. And it says, if I can just get this high, then I'll be happy. If I can just achieve this, then I'll be happy. If I can just get exalted in this, in this, my job, in my friend group, in my life, I will be happy. But the root of pride is actually insecurity. It's because we think of ourselves lower than we are trying to get higher than others. And the answer to pride is security. And the only way that any of us can be secure is through God's security, through his love if our identity is found in the person of Jesus and who he says they are, then only then can we experience freedom from the rat race of life. It talks about this person named Antipas who is martyred, and it says that they did not give up, give up their faith and they were faithful to Christ even in this time. 
Now, not much is known about Antipas. We don't really know who he is. The only thing we know about him is that he's considered a faithful servant. But I think this shows us two things. Number one is that it is important to have our own faith. If our faith is based off of somebody else, if our faith is based off of a leader, when those people fail or when they um, pass away, our faith will also pass away with them. And especially in a day and age where of social media and influencers, you know, it's funny how, you know, you see something so many times, different people wearing a piece of clothing, and suddenly you really want that piece of clothing, right? Because we're all being influenced. But it's really important that we have our own faith. And the second thing is that this, in this time, the Antipas is martyred. Now, that was a real threat to every single person in that church. And it probably would have filled them with lots of fear. But they still stay faithful. Because sometimes the right place is also the hard place to be. And I don't know about you guys, but I kind of think my life would be better if it's really comfortable, you know? I like to be comfortable in life. I don't really want to go through lots of hard things. But God sometimes calls us to the hard place. And just like we learned last week, God is present in it. God is present in your hard place. Whether that's the job that you're currently in, whether that is um, the city that you live in, maybe this is a hard place for you to live. But God calls you to the right place, and he's present in it. Then he says, he gives us, he's getting, in the middle of his diagnosis, he's telling them they're doing really well, they did not give up their faith. And then he says this little word, nevertheless. Which, when you're hearing feedback, the last word you want to hear is, nevertheless. <laughs> so then he goes into what they're doing wrong. And we see that there's two doctrines. The first doctrine he mentioned is the doctrine of Balaam. And Balaam is seen in the Bible in Numbers. He's also mentioned in 2 Peter 2.15 and Jude 1.11. And Balaam is known in the Bible as someone who leads people away from the Lord. So in Numbers, the Israelites are traveling through the country of Moab. And they, Balak is this Moabite king, and he decides that he's going to pay Balaam money in order for Balaam to pronounce curses upon the Israelites. And originally Balak says, or Balaam says no, but after they offer him money, he eventually says yes. So the doctrine of Balaam is a belief that a little sin doesn't hurt, especially if there's some financial or personal benefit involved. And he acts to enable sinful behaviors for personal gain. The doctrine of Balaam is the attitude that one can be serving the Lord, attracting God's presence, hearing from God, and speaking on God's behalf, and yet also be fully cooperative with the world. And this is called compromise. It's giving up some of your faith in order to fit in with those around you, or settling for standards and behaviors that you don't really believe in. In the city of Pergamum, because there were so many different pagan worship happening around them, because they were in a city where they were getting um, persecuted, those, there were those who decided that it was easiest just to compromise, to still be in the church, but to compromise their practices and their principles and follow some of the pagan principles. Their main problem as a church is that they compromised, and Christ is rebuking the church for tolerating those who, like Balaam, are leading people away from God. And I just want to read part of Balaam's story. So we find this in Numbers 22, verses 21 to 34, if you have a Bible and you want to follow along. 
It says, Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the Moabite officials. But God was very angry when he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Balaam was riding on his donkey, and two, his two servants were with him. When the, angel saw the, when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, it turned off the road into a field. Balaam beat it to get it back on the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path through the vineyards with walls on both sides. When the, angel saw the, angel, when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it. So he beat the donkey again. Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it lay down under Balaam, and he was angry and beat it with his staff. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and it said to Balaam, What have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? Balaam answered the donkey, You have made a fool of me. If only I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No, he said. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword down. Then he bowed low and fell face down. The angel of the Lord asked him, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I have come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If it had not turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now, but I would have spared it. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. I did not realize you were standing in the road to oppose me. Now, if you are displeased, I will go back. What I find so interesting about this story is Balaam is so distracted by the financial benefit that he's going to gain, by the reckless path that he's walking down, that he doesn't even see the angel of the Lord right in front of him. He's so distracted by his own, what's going on in his own life, that he does not even see the angel in front of him. And God then used a miracle to get his attention. And the miracle is that his donkey speaks to him. But the crazy part about it is that he speaks right back to his donkey. And he doesn't even say, why are you speaking to me? So what things are distracting you? What are you missing out on because you're distracted? Especially in a world of social media and Netflix and TV, and there's so many different things that, are just, that can distract us. It's really easy to be, you know, going from getting your kids ready in the morning, going to work, coming back, making tea, having tea, making, watching a show, putting kids to bed, you know, and you go through your entire day without actually stopping. But there's also other people who can be a distraction to us. Or maybe it's your own pain. And this last season, I was really struggling and was quite frustrated with God about the place where he'd put me. I was going through some, you know, personal things and some things I was struggling with, and I was like, why am I here, Lord? Why does, did this have to happen? Why did this have to happen? And my own pain was clouding me from seeing God that was right in front of me. And I think it's the same for us. So what things are distracting you? What are you missing because you're distracted? In a similar way from the doctrine of Balaam, the Nicolaitans were believers who compromised their faith to enjoy some of the sinful practices of the society. They were justifying their behavior, saying it isn't as bad as it seems, or it won't really hurt our faith or hurt anyone else. 
And Christ was calling out the church for their sin and asking them to return to him. And the only sins that it mentions here is eating food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. I think what this shows us is that God cares what we do with our bodies. Jesus calls our body a temple of the Holy Spirit, and he cares what we do with it. Now we move on to our action points. Now, our action points are only two words here. Repent, therefore. Our only action point is to change the way that we're thinking, to repent, to turn back from Christ. And this is so much, there's so much grace in this word of repentance. Because it says in verse 16, Otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You see, he doesn't say that he's going to fight against us. He says he's going to fight against them. The them being those who were um, against the church, those who were trying to lead people away from the church. So he's going to fight against them. There's so much grace here. If we just turn back to Jesus, he accepts us in. In the story of Balaam, um, so after he goes, he goes to finally gets to the Moabite country after he's spoken to his donkey, and he continues on his reckless path, and he goes, starts going to all these different viewpoints where, he can see, where they can see the Israelites out there, and he goes to speak curses, and the only thing that comes out of his mouth are blessings. And that is what Jesus does for us. He turns the curses that are coming against us, the hard times that are coming against us, and he turns them into blessings for each one of us. In Deuteronomy 23.5, it says, The Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but turn the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loves you. He loves you so much that he would turn curses into blessings for you. And then we come to the reward. And it says, To the one who is victorious, we get two things. Number one, the hidden manna. And number two, the white stone with a new name. I first want to talk about the hidden manna. The hidden manna is completely opposite to the food that they were eating that was sacrificed to idols. The heavenly food that God represents, and Jesus even calls himself the bread of life, and he provides spiritual food that will satisfy your deepest hunger. It also refers to our acceptance at the communion table. We have been offered in, brought into the family of God. We are accepted at the communion table. Then it talks about the white stone. In Pergamum, at at the different temples that they would have, they'd put a white stone as inscription, and they would write somebody's name on that had been healed. And Christ puts a white stone on us. And he says, you are healed. You are declared righteous. You are made new. He gives us a white stone with a new name, and we see this many different times in the Bible. Simon turns into Peter, Abram to Abraham, Jacob to Israel, Saul to Paul, and it's a sign of their conversion. It's a sign that they are of new identity, that they have been made new. I'm going to end uh, shortly, so I'm going to invite our worship team to come back up. But I want to read from Revelation 21, verses 1 to 5. And it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne say, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. 
They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. I want you to listen to this bit. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. God has a new name for you. He has a new identity for you. And it's symbolic that God changes us. He makes us into a new creation. So maybe there's an area of your life where you've been distraction, distracted. Maybe there's an area where you need to come and repent. Maybe there's an area of your life where you've been compromising. Maybe there's a season of your life where you just feel like you want to give up. God is asking you to turn to him, to come back to him, and he wants to make you a new creation.